When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word. Season 15, episode 9. It's midweek. It's Delhi. It's London. It's Jeff Lemon. It's Adam Collins. It's the weekly show. Uh, a lot going on this week. Meg Lanning retired from international cricket. Sri Lanka got kicked out of the ICC. France cricket under investigation. Sheffield Shield. Rob Key's exit interview. Well, his interview about England's exit. WBBL. Plenty to go along with, Adam, as we have a, a slight breathe in, breathe out from the World Cup hecticness when there are a couple of days between the group stage being done and the semi-finals to come. No more group stage dailies. You've knocked them all over. <laughs> 45 running one and done and all the rest. Yeah, you say midweek. It's actually top of the morning in London on a Monday morning, which I'm, I, I like when we record at the start of the week. It feels like we're beginning the final word week on the right foot. And yeah, lots to lots to get through that's not World Cup related, um, which is how we've designed these weekly shows over the last seven weeks. There is some World Cup stuff floating around, though. The Glenn Maxwell T-shirts, which have made a uh, made a, a comeback. These were designed in 2019 by Anthony and the team at League Tees, the old napkin that I posted West Wing Maxwell for Australia many years ago on Twitter. I think I first posted that in 2015 when Usman Khawaja tore his hamstring at the Wacker playing a test against New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And there was some speculation that they might go the bold option and pick Maxwell for the uh, for the Boxing Day Test match, it didn't come to pass. Uh, but you know, uh, that was when I, I first started putting up that graphic, and it got turned into a T-shirt. Did quite well in nineteen. Hasn't been in circulation for four years, and after his two hundred and one not out, it's back in business again and been doing great, uh, great sales. I'm told. So why not get one? That's the only final word merch we have. People often ask us, Jeff, where's your T-shirts? Where's your merch? All the other podcasts do it. We have so many things on our bloody to-do list. We just don't prioritise merch, but yeah. it has been prioritised for us by League T. So get one of these T-shirts. Why not? You can. Um, we will have some at some point. I know I've been saying this for about two years um, in the same breath as I am going to fix the website and I'm going to <laughs> reply to everybody's messages in the DM inbox. Or, you know, I'm sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> things things, things keep not getting done because, you know, a World Cup happens and just before that an Ashes happens and, and on and on we go. But, you know, we're, we're doing our best. So, yes, those those are out. Um, those are available at Maxwell for Australia. It's a campaign we can all get behind. Somebody who, who knows how to, 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 to get the team out of trouble. It's not the first time he's done it. So, you know, the, the test dream, not entirely over yet. I'd, 
I think there should still be some consideration at some point. We've got a couple of new runners signing up for the Edinburgh Marathon. Chris and Georgia Holt will yes. be doing – are they doing the, the, the 21 or the 42? I think they're both running the half marathon. But, yeah, just reiterating our message from the last few weeks that this is the right time to sign up. There's the dedicated – Final word, Lord's Taverners website now as well. That'll be in the show notes, as will the Maxwell for Australia t-shirt link. Um, it's not hard to, to navigate your way there and put your details in. And let me know as well. If you want to run the half or the full or the 10K, just drop me a message through one of the platforms and um, I can link you up with the Lord's Tabs. And we want to get to the 50 runner mark by Christmas. That's our goal. So we've got six more weeks to um, recruit and we're keen to raise 30,000 quid for the Lord's Taverners and their brilliant work. So it's all going to the right place. Uh, And yes, if you've never run before, the 10K option isn't a bad one on the Saturday morning. So yes, consider it. Consider it and get involved. News just to hand. We need to touch on this before we get going as well, Adam. Six in six. We've been waiting for six in six. It's a little bit like a timed out dismissal in (laughs) international cricket. We've seen people take five wickets in and over. There's never been to my knowledge, at any level of professional cricket. No one's ever had the perfect over. They've never taken six in six. And this was not in professional cricket, but it was in club cricket in Australia. Gareth Morgan, the captain of Mudgee in the Gold Coast's Premier League Division Three, took a wicket with every ball of the final over of a one-day match when defending not many uh, and knocked off the opener who was on 65 and then knocked off five guys in a row for Golden Ducks. Yeah, this is generating... Bang, 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 bang. bang. (laughs) It's generating a lot of attention around the world since this um, went online a couple of days ago or a day ago, whatever it is. Yeah, so they were playing against Surface Paradise who required five to win, and the umpire said to Gareth Morgan, the captain, oh, you're bowling the last over. You'll need to take a hat-trick to keep this interesting. And so he did, then took three more. So, um, you know, I know we we bang on about this a little bit with what constitutes double hat-trick or a triple hat-trick. A quadruple hat-trick is a phrase I've never seen before, but it is one of those by the way we define these things mostly in Australia. I know if you're listening mm-hmm. in the UK, you won't agree with that, but it's uh, it's nomenclature that we're familiar with in Australia. But yeah, six in a row, two were caught, including the opener on 64, then the last four were clean bowled, uh, all, and five, of course, were, were golden ducks. What a, what a night out that would have been. Uh, winning a game from the brink like that in circumstances that we've never happened upon before. There was Neil Wagner taking five in five about 12 years ago in a first-class game. I know we've touched on that on story time, but mm-hmm. this is um, this is next level. Six in six. So, so if you went by stodgy English standards, you could still call it a double hat trick because <laughs> you, you have one followed by another. Um, but if you if you understand the mathematical nature of sequences, then you would understand that there are four individual sequences of three in a row across that sequence. So it, it, it ends up being a quadruple. Sorry about that. Sorry, 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 sorry that that makes everybody so mad. I'm sorry that you're wrong. I'm sorry that you're wrong. Sometimes it's hard to be wrong, but you, but you get used to it over time. Uh, there's some po- cricket politics, Jeff, that we should deal with before talking about Meg Lanning in our first segment here. So uh, Sri Lanka getting suspended by the ICC felt like a big deal when the statement lobbed. It was quite a strident sort of press release from the ICC saying they're in serious breach of their obligations as a member, in particular the requirement to manage its affairs autonomously and to ensure there is no government intervention 
or no government interference rather, in the governance, regulation and or administration of cricket in Sri Lanka. Now, the, the context of this is that the ICC have been called in by uh, Sri Lankan cricket before. We were there last year. We know that there are, there are dramatic events in Sri Lanka more widely and cricket has not been immune to that. And with the ICC board meeting in Ahmedabad mm-hmm. this week between the 18th and the 21st of November, the first time since July when they met after the World Test Championship final, it feels like Sri Lanka have initiated this to bring this to the boil um, to try and engineer some kind of change and make sure the government get out of their day-to-day affairs and let them do what they're meant to be doing as the cricket board. And this is also interesting timing because Sri Lanka are scheduled to host an ICC event in January and February, the Men's Under-19s World Cup. So uh, that's going to have to be resolved when the ICC board meet this week. They've got no other commitments as it relates to the ICC in the short term. They don't get their next payment from the ICC until January. That's when when it's due. I think they're quarterly payments from memory. So if, so long as they uh, scare the government into action and get out of the the business of, of Sri Lankan cricket, then they should be okay. But as we saw with Zimbabwe back in 2019 when they were suspended on similar grounds, these things do have a habit of dragging on. So it's uh, no sure thing. So Sri Lanka brought this on like instigated this themselves in order to force some sort of resolution. That's interesting. Okay. So it it wasn't a a unilateral act. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's been reported. I'm not sure whether um, Sri Lankan cricket have said as much, but in one Crick Info article that seemed well sourced, it said that this isn't the first time they've tried to get the ICC involved to investigate their affairs. So they've had a crack at doing this once before. I I remember a similar thing. Maybe, yeah, 10 or 12 years ago, something like that. Um, definitely rings a bell that something similar happened. And it was a little bit like that in South Africa too with, with um, the, the conflict between the, the sports minister and the former board um, when, when that board was trying to resist being dissolved. Part of what they were, part of one of the, the triggers they were trying to hit was to, to, to say that this constituted government yeah. interference and that, that, um, that they could... They could sort of basically take CSA hostage, you know, the board could, um, and, and threaten to get it kicked out of international cricket in that sort of way, which is interesting. It's interesting to see a statement saying that uh, Sri Lanka was in serious breach of its obligations uh, to not have government interference when Afghanistan's still fine. I mean, the Taliban basically pick the Afghanistan cricket board officials. They... They got rid of the guy they didn't like. They put Mavez Ashraf in as CEO in his place. They at least ticked off the squad. You know, there were players who who were not selected, as far as I'm aware, um, who who were who were not given the tick by the Taliban. So they're you know they're in it up to their elbows in Afghanistan cricket. But that's fine. That's fine with the ICC, and you know, well, I mean, we're 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 in India, where the Home Minister's son runs the BCCI, <laughs> but that's fine as well. There's no there's no government interference. Couldn't couldn't possibly draw that conclusion. But in Sri Lanka, can't have it can't have it happening there. Yeah, it's interesting that they've sort of brought it on themselves. French cricket as well, they're getting looked at because um, the, the reports there that they've been faking games, particularly women's matches, in order to access funding, in order to to satisfy so the clubs can satisfy the requirements to to apply for funding and so some of them have been unwilling to do this um, and have not been getting funding and others have been pretending, like literally just making up entire teams and making up matches that never took place with players who don't exist and writing out the scorecards and then putting them up online. Um, the investigation had a journalist going to these grounds where these matches were supposedly being played and there were no games being played um, and there's a, a fairly nutty statement put out by the, I guess he's 
styling himself as the chief exec of France Cricket, who was saying that it was a it, it was it was a stitch up basically because the journalist was of British origin and he, this gentleman, was of Indian origin, and so obviously that was why they were faking this report to try to discredit him. You know, some nonsense along those lines. I wonder how they drafted up the scorecards because presumably you need a score book as well. And in order to write out a long form school book, you've actually got to kind of go through the motions of every delivery being accounted for. Like kind of like dice cricket when you're a kid. I don't know if you played this when you're a kid, Jeff, but I certainly yeah, did with my brother. You know, you, you have a, a scoring system and you score in the book, right, as you would a normal game mm. of cricket. I could have lent them some old score sheets. Could have worked that well for them. But, um, yeah, go, actually going through and, you know, I wonder if that's how they got rumbled, that, you know, the, the, the batting didn't add up with the bowling or, or whatever it is because um, this is uh, – <laughs> yeah, this even by um, even by the standards that we're used to in international cricket, this is cowboy stuff. Thomas Miles, someone would have loved this, you know, yeah. someone who likes doing the, the scorebooks. If you said go out and invent some games, or those dudes on the web forum yeah. that we were talking about on Storytime who were who were who were doing simulated games from the 1906 Olympics that wasn't an Olympics and where cricket wasn't played, but just making it up. You know, if you could just invent teams, you know, Bobson Dugnut is opening the batting for the the local French women's club cricket team and has made 37 from 24 deliveries. You know, you could you could come up with whole narratives, but you wouldn't want the scorecards to be too interesting. You couldn't have six, six wickets no. and six balls or something because then people would start <laughs> reporting about it. So you, you've got to have a lot of very dull games, no close finishes because you don't want anybody coming to look it up. But it's... There's, there's a line of work there for some of the real stats nerds out there who want to get into making up wagon wheels, you know, making up scorecards. I, th- I still think we should um, collaborate with Tom Miles on making a scorebook, a final word-oriented scorebook. We could use it, crude segue here, Jeff, in our final word Melbourne game, which as far as I'm aware, we are like hours from signing off our venue for it, but it's happening on the 3rd of December. And we have got opposition, we have got a ground that's almost secured, a bloody good one at that, a turf venue. We were originally going to play on hard wickets, but we've um, been able to trade up on that front. It's a Sunday, I'm pretty sure, the 3rd of December, and it'll be, yeah, the final word, 11 Australia style, um, taking on. Uh, it's the Brunswick Reds, isn't it, who we're playing? Um, or the Royal Park Reds, rather, Royal Park Reds, which Dan Toomes, who, who runs, Dan Toomey runs Fisher Classics, is part of that club and has been there for 20 years or something like that. So he's been the, the conduit between us and them. But, yes, uh, my, one of the jobs on my list of that, ending endless to-do lists that we have for the final word is to get some more baggy caps made up before leaving the UK this time next week. Mm-hmm. Hopefully they'll give me a quick turnaround time and I can bring some back with me because we'll need them for the 3rd of December. We will. And we may also need them for the live shows that we didn't mention <laughs> off the top because uh, they're going to happen. We, we're still hammering out a couple of details there, but we have dates and we're pretty confident that these are the dates that are going to go ahead. We have a Melbourne show. Um, we have a Sydney show. And, and we may even, in your absence, Barrett and I may have an Adelaide show. Um, that's That one is still nascent, but Melbourne and Sydney are pretty well confirmed. Yeah, so the 12th of December will be Melbourne. We're just nailing down the venue at the moment. So I know that's uh, about four weeks from now and it's going to be a pretty quick turnaround time. But you know what? We've done these shows uh, with three or four weeks turnaround time in the past. It will be fine. With any luck, we'll have tickets on sale for that in the next 48 hours. And Sydney is going to be the 7th of January, which is night five of the tests between Australia and Pakistan. So hopefully there'll still still be plenty of people about who've rocked up for the test match and still in Sydney and we've never done one there. Um, It felt only right that we... uh that we spread our wings a bit, having done plenty in Melbourne and London and Adelaide that we now move to uh, to Sydney as well. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. So um, file those dates away, pop them in your memory palace, and we'll have more information about all of that soon. Alan Donald has quit his job as the Bangladesh bowling coach. Mm. This this is kind of amusing to me because it, it pretty much seems that he was, like maybe he was leaving anyway, but he was sufficiently unimpressed by the timed out situation with Angelo Matthews. So he laid into them the next day. He did an interview with a, a website. I can't remember the name of it. Apologies to their reporting, but gave a very long, he was obviously asked, about it, but gave an extensive answer, like paragraphs and paragraphs about how he he didn't like it, it didn't seem right, uh, which included this quote, my, my immediate reaction when that happened, and this is just my instincts would have taken over, is I almost thought of going on the field and saying enough is enough, we don't stand for this, we are not that kind of team. Well, he was incorrect, they were that kind of team, um, which we think is fine as we've talked about but the BCB the Bangladesh board got annoyed and said they would seek an explanation for his comments criticizing the captain and he then said he was quitting at the end of the World Cup and said that's fine with me if they want to seek an explanation as far as I'm concerned the explanation was in the news today as in (laughs) you guys are a bunch of pricks and I'm out of here so and and he you know he'd done a really good job with their fast bowling cartel over the last couple of years, Alan Donald, and, and made them quite formidable. But obviously, they everybody had a shit-ass World Cup in, in that Bangladesh squad um, across the board. Mohamed Issam has been riding well on that. But um, it's interesting that he chose to chuck it in. Um, and then there's the MCC statement that came out that was very broadly supportive of the, the decision to invoke the dismissal. I thought this was good. So we had a couple of extra angles to this. So the MCC saying that um, that even at one minute 54, which was the, the, the time that everyone agreed on for when the strap was pulled, um, that even if you acknowledge that, he couldn't have been facing within six seconds of that juncture. So I think that's the MCC saying that the appeal was fine. And interestingly, Ashwin got involved, as Ashwin does, bless, saying that uh, during a test match at Nagpur this year that we were at, the first test of the Board of Gavaska, that the umpire said to him when he was taking his time to get out there to be night watchman that had Australia appealed for timed out and that he would have been given out on the basis that he'd taken more than two minutes to get out there and, and face up. So it, it might just be something that umpires are more alert to than they were before, and I'm, I'm certain there'll be some mm. fielding captains who are. Uh, and keeping an eye on the stopwatch and keeping umpires across when they feel like the batting team's taking the piss. I mean, I know that it is an open and shut with the Angelo Matthews one for all of the reasons that we went through last week, but you know, I didn't mind that statement from the MCC that actually went to the effort of explaining the way the, the law and the playing condition was applied and why it was still accurate, even with the, the, the stopwatch bit that Angelo Matthews was pushing around on social media, which I also enjoyed. Why not, <laughs> why not become your own publisher yeah. in that situation? Sure. Sure. I just liked that the screenshot he, he had was saying this is a minute 54 or whatever it was, had him standing several metres away from the crease yeah. facing the opposite direction. Like, <laughs> he's not ready to face a ball. That's no. not that's not how you face a ball. Um, sorry, buddy. And Shakib is still standing at the top of his mark in that picture waiting to bowl. So <laughs> if he had been ready to face a ball, he would have you know, he would have been facing a ball because it would have happened. The biggest story of the week was that Meg Lanning has retired from international cricket. Jeff at age 31, you know, captain for a decade, made a debut at 18. She was uh, making international hundreds when she was 18, the youngest to ever do it for Australia. We've told her story in depth before and I might run through a few stats in a minute, but this is kind of like very expected in a way. Uh, you know, it's been the long goodbye for Meg Lanning with international cricket. Twice she stepped away in the last couple of years. She still got back in time to play in the World Cup at the end of last year. No, the start of this year, wasn't it? The T20 World Cup in South Africa, which they won. So that completes an amazing run for her where she was captain for five successful World Cup wins, which 
as it is in so many different statistical categories, she's at the top or number one in the list. But as she said herself when speaking to the media, she no longer has the spark to do it, said she's now relieved at having made the decision. And I also found really interesting, Jeff, that she wants to get out of the cricketing bubble. And I get this. She's had a very intense 20s where she has been part of the first generation of full professional women's cricket. So in previous generations, you could have balanced playing for Australia with another job or education or whatever it is. She's been from age 18, even younger really, given when she started playing for Victoria, full on dedicated to cricket at all times. And I understand being 31 and thinking, well, I've kind of done it all. Time's over. I want to have something else to fill my cup, to be part of my life. And like last year, she was, well, literally doing that, filling cups when she became a barista briefly when sitting out of the Australian team, missed the women's ashes this year due to a a non-disclosed medical issue, which is fine. Of course, that's fine that she didn't tell us that. But I mean, I, I feel like... The, the broader story here is is a brilliant one. And mm. now she can go off and continue playing some domestic cricket. She'll still play in the WPL next year. She's playing in the Big Bash at the moment, of course, and she can do things more on her terms, having completed the best ever career for a women's cricketer in Australia. Uh, yeah, I guess she can say that's where a big chunk of the money will be. Go and play those leagues. You're, I suppose, if you're playing WBBL and so on, you're, you're slightly less in the spotlight. And so the level of earnings that she'll be foregoing won't be as huge as it would have been, you know, a few years ago a national contract was basically the only cash in the game. So if you didn't have one of those, that was it. Now, an Australian national contract is still hugely lucrative, but you can earn your money in other ways. So it's interesting. I, I, I suspect there'll be more to come out about this as well. Like there, there is all of that vagueness around whatever medical issues she was having and and like you say it's not it's not something where you expect that everybody has to release every detail but I suppose we're so conditioned to athletes having you know the details do get released most of the time we know what's going on so obviously there's there's something that's much more sensitive for whatever reason and Mm. that's the reason that we haven't dug into it and and, uh, tried to find out what the answer that story is I, I think you can tell when the implication is that it's none of your business maybe it's it's just time for it to be none of your business but I'd be surprised if that's not a factor in this as well, whatever else is going on, the amount of time that she's missed. You know, she's missed big chunks out of the game since 2017 when she had that shoulder rehab operation. Mm. But then, you know, the the mental health personal reasons break and then pretty quickly after that, you know, sort of came back, won that Commonwealth Games medal and then after that goes back on hiatus for this undisclosed reason. It, I, I suppose to some degree I'd, I think that, if they'd been a bit more upfront about what was going on, then people would understand what was happening a bit more. But like we say, maybe it's just none of our business. I just think that I, I can't get beyond... Now she said it publicly, the idea that like she just wants other things, right? And for some men or boys who are in the system and become men as, as professional athletes, they go through that too. I'm I'm curious about the extent to which this intersects with like professionalism. And it's a good problem to have, right? Like women are earning more money than ever before to play the game. We celebrate that at every possible opportunity, but it does come with it wider and broader responsibilities. And given she was doing it so young, like, you know, she made a century for Australia at 18 and 288 days, the youngest ever in international cricket back in 2011, a one day ton against England in Perth. I mean, that is reaching a high standard a very long time ago and having to stay at it in ways that her predecessors didn't. 
I mean, we, we interviewed both Isha Gua and Ebony Rainford-Brent on the podcast a number of years ago, and they both spoke about retiring in their mid-20s for financial reasons, but it meant they both got started with part two of their lives quite early on, right? And there are other players who will fall into that category too, I'm sure. Whereas with Meg, she wants to do other things and like good on her for having the presence of mind to see that and evaluate that now. Like I don't expect she's going to bob up as the Australian batting coach, you know, where there are others who play professional cricket who you are pretty sure that when they finish, usually it's men, when they're finished, they will end up the, you know, the batting coach for New South Wales or they'll end up, you know, the, on television or radio inside ensconced within the cricketing bubble uh, forever and a day. Whereas she's like, no, I want to do the very opposite of that. I'll keep playing contractually obliged to keep playing in India next year. That's the, that's what she signed up to and in the big bash for the time being. But, you know, she doesn't have that edge to keep doing what she's already done. Mentioned the stats before, Crick Info compiled all of these. 8,353 international runs, uh, the most for Australia by a mile. 17 centuries, the most for a woman ever, um, with Bates and Edwards on, on 13 apiece as equal second. 10 of her 1,500s in one-day cricket, Jeff, were chasing. That's double. Uh, the next, which is Amy Satterthwaite with five. Five World Cup wins as captain, 2014, 2018, 2020, 2023 in the shorter form, and 2022 last year, the one-day World Cup with some redemption there, of course, uh, owing to what happened in the 2017 semi final. A batting average in the mid 50s in one day cricket, a strike rate in the low 90s, you know, a 45 ball century to her name in short form cricket back in 2012 against New Zealand, still made nearly 3,500 T20 international runs, even though that was seen as her secondary format. 13 centuries as Australian captain. She led 24 consecutive one-day wins between 2018 and 2021. I mean, you put it all together in a list like that, she finished it. Like she had completed the game. You know what I mean? Like there's almost nothing more there for Mm. her. How can she get up for another T20 World Cup in a year from now in Bangladesh and another 50-over World Cup, which is scheduled three years from now. I mean, a, a lot of cricketers work in, in World Cup cycles. I, I totally get this. Yeah, I suppose there is that as well. And once you've, you know, once you have a Commonwealth Games gold, what else is there? <laughs> what else is there to go on for? <laughs> Olympics, maybe could have pushed on to the Olympics. Maybe she'll make a comeback, you know, just <laughs> Ben Stokes style. She'll probably walk back into that team. But it did, it was interesting. It did feel like the game had caught up to her you know she she was able to hold her own in the modern game but years before that she was it felt like at the time that she was the first sort of full level professional level even before the contracts were professional sort of elite standard player in the way that others would catch up to you know when she came through and started reeling off one day tons um, because Charlotte Edwards had nine of them in I think 180 odd matches and, and yep. Lanning caught her up in less than half the time. And it was the speed at which she scored. It was that strike rate in the 90s, which nobody did. You know, there was a little, Jess Cameron did a little bit of it in that sort of overlap period, but players just didn't score that quickly. They, they scored in the 60s or 70s for strike rates for the most part in one day cricket, low 70s if that. Um, and Lanning came along and basically went at a, a runner ball and made tons consistently. And nobody mm. did that. Nobody played like that. She was so much better than every other women's player on the planet and then it's sort of testament to the development of the game that over the course of her career others have caught up and now there are others who are uh, broadly of of a piece with the kind of skill and consistency that she displayed. All right, Meg Lanning, well played, and we'll talk more about her, I'm sure, when we do our WBBL wrap in the second half of the show. Before we get to the break, though, Jeff, a quick bit of... A nerd pledge, nerd pledge, nerd pledge. The show that the show, the show that we play the, the on the game, the show that we play on the game with the people who listen to the game show. This is the game show. This is the rock show. It's another fine reason. 
Right, nerd pledge. People send us numbers. This is the crux of the game, and we have to guess what the numbers mean. The numbers mean something to do with cricket. The numbers initially are money. Um, that's how we fund the program. That is a less elegant way of explaining it than normal. But Simon Tamblin, <laughs> for instance, has sent in $11.80, and that means the number is 1180, and he has sent through a clue, which you don't have to do, but this will help us solve it. Yes, welcome, Simon. My new nerd pledge is 1180. Ignore the zero. I couldn't do $1.18. That's very kind of you, Simon. Basically a free kick. 118 was my top score. I have the scorecard to prove it. Tell me about someone who matched me. Good one, Simon. Is it one of those scorecards that they're doing in France? I hope not. All yours, Jeff. <laughs> Enchanté. Ah, très bien. Bien battered, monsieur. Now, okay, 118. And there are a lot of good 118s. Yeah, most recently Mitchell Nash at Headingley. That was a great 118 that I, I could have talked about if I'd wanted to. But I chose to talk about this one instead, Simon. We've talked before on Storytime or in Nerd Pledge Answers about Kiran Baluk, who still holds the women's test record with her 242 that she made for Pakistan, which she did... In a big opening stand with Sajida Shah, um, they put on 241 together. They did it all on the first day. And, uh, you know, sadly, poignantly, Sajida Shah is out in the second last over of the first day for 98. Doesn't get to 100. But, but Kiran Balak goes on to make to go past Matali Raj's 214 with what is still the highest women's test score. So they go on to 426 for seven declared. But we haven't talked as much about the West Indies part in this test match because this is a Pakistan-West Indies test, which may seem crazy in the current environment, but yes, <laughs> Pakistan and West Indies women played test matches. You know, hopefully, hopefully at some time in the future we will see another Pakistan-West Indies women's test. It's 2004, it's in Karachi, which stands out because if you think about this, Adam, geopolitically and all the rest of it, it's two and a half years after 9-11. It's just on a year after George W. Bush has sent troops into Iraq. Afghanistan's popping off, that war there. Pakistan is very much a, you know, a, a place where Americans and particularly are saying don't go to Pakistan. Um, and they go and they play seven ODIs plus this test match all in Karachi, which must have been like quite a wild experience for this women's team from the Caribbean to uh, end up over there and, and to be somewhat out of their comfort zone, you would have imagined uh, suddenly playing in Pakistan. It must have been quite, quite the trip. So... Mm. That late wicket on day one, they put on 241. The next partnership adds 27. And then three wickets fall on the same score. There are three ducks in the middle of this inning. So it's 242 and 98 off the top. And then three noughts through the middle order. Felicia Cummings, the West Indies bowler, knocks them all off. Not a hat trick, but not far off a hat trick. Oruj Mumtaz, who we were, who was doing a bit of work on the TV broadcast when we were over there was one of those players who got out for a duck in that that sequence so it's not a hat trick but the score goes 273 for three then 273 for four then 273 for five and then Kieran Balok gets some support down the order adds another 140 across two partnerships before she's out they declare and then you get a hat trick Shaiza Khan on her way to seven in the innings, takes a hat-trick against West Indies across two overs, which is a good hat-trick too. It includes the two set players who are on 47 and 19 across those two overs. West Indies are all out for 147. They're no chance. And then Nadine George arrives at the party. Well, she's been at the party the whole time, actually. She's kept wicket for 166 overs, like nine hours in the field. She's batted a fair bit of the first innings, made 22 and looked good. So they do a VVS Laxman. After the, the follow-on's enforced, they pop her up to number three and say, just, just keep going. And so she does. She comes in at the fall of an early wicket, 
which was Indomati Gordial John, who is someone we did a long story on uh, about on Storytime, about how she popped up playing for the USA from memory um, later in her career. Anyway, Nadine George is the subject of our story today. Makes her 100 off 150 balls, which is pretty good going. This is a fairly slow-scoring game. Hits 15 boundaries on the way. Um, builds a couple of big partnerships. There are some great names in this team. So Janelle Greaves and Verena Felicien are the two others in these big partnerships. Bats through to near the end of the third day and then she's stuffed. She's got like muscle strains. She's sore. She reaches her 100. She retires hurt. They're four down at this point or by the end of the day. And then she comes back the next day, a couple more wickets fall and she comes back and continues batting gets up to 118, which is the score that we're looking for, from 185 balls. And by the time she gets out, they're ahead. They've actually batted themselves into a lead. It's only 38 runs, but they're ahead. The captain's out, Stephanie Power, another great name. Juliana Nero, another great name. She's out. And then there's more lower order resistance from the West Indies this time. Uh, Jackie Robinson, not that Jackie Robinson, different one. And Doris Francis, who got a duck in the middle of the hat trick but this time she comes back, makes 46 not out, redeems herself, and they get all the way up to 162 in front before they're bowled out, at which point Pakistan have 31 overs to try to chase it. These days they maybe they would chase it in 31 overs, but you could guess the state of the pitch would have been pretty turgid and um, not a lot of power hitting going on in that team of 2004. Um, Kiran Bullock did hit 38 fours in her, her double hundred, but she gets out for 22 and then... They, they don't get near it from that point. They end up at 58 for two and draw the game. But it is it is a save. It's one of the great follow-on saves. The century in the follow-on, 118 from Nadine George, the keeper, who said not giving this one up um, with the 118 that she made. And it's, it's not only her only century. It was the first century in any format for West Indies women's cricket. So she hold that, holds that distinction. Um, and quite sadly, it's still the only Test 100 by a West Indies woman player. So hopefully that can change at some point in the future. Nice one. Well said, Jeff. Yes, and well played, Nadine George. Some great names in all of that there. Nice story to tell for Simon Tamblin. If you want to join Simon as part of our crew that supports what Jeff and I do, patreon.com forward slash the final word. And from there, you can join Discord where a lot of other fun stuff happens. Uh, Jeff, before we go to the break, NordVPN, we've been talking about them a lot over the last couple of weeks. Please go again. We have. We have you, and you should you could join them as well because uh, you can get a big discount on your VPN. If you don't have a VPN, you've probably wanted a VPN at times when you've tried to play a clip on social media and it says this video is not authorized for use in your region, and you go, I just want to watch some highlights of whatever sport this is from whatever country it's in. Well, you can. You go to your VPN little app and you pick which country you want to be in, and you can be in it. You can go and book tickets from the country of origin rather than getting screwed on exchange rates. Um, you can protect your private information, your bank details, your passwords, your online identity. You can have an extra layer of security when you're on public Wi-Fi. Uh, you can get protection from viruses and NordVPN is the fastest VPN in the world. I know because I use it. So I actually use it. This is actually true. And uh, it, it's been invaluable the last five or six weeks in India. I took up the subscription with Nord when I was uh, on my honeymoon earlier this year and being the romantic that I am, I really wanted to watch the Matildas play. It was during the Women's Football World Cup and I realised there was no way of doing that in Corfu short of me making the computer believe that I was in the UK and watching on the BBC. And so I did. That's why I've got NordVPN, quickest in the world, works a treat, use it all the time. You can have up to six devices running concurrently, price of a coffee a month. And here is the call to action, huge discount, NordVPN plan. Go to Nord 
goldvpn.com forward slash TFW, the name of our show. That code also gives you four months free on the two-year plan and no risk with a 30-day money-back guarantee. The link's in the show notes, nordvpn.com forward slash TFW. That sounds like a great deal. Back with more soon. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We've got squads for the England women's tour mm. to India. We've got squads for the England men's white ball tour to the Caribbean. And, and both of these have some interesting things in them. The women's team will be playing a test match just before Australia plays a test match, as we've talked about. Terrible missed opportunity to have a triangular and have Australia also play England in a one-off in India, which would have been great. Sadly, sadly, it's not going to happen. But Sophie Eccleston is going to be there, provided her shoulder rehab continues to go well. She's still doing rehab now, but she's had her surgery in September and will probably be called upon to bowl another 90 overs in that test match. (laughs) Um, Something like that, as, as she was at Trent Bridge. They've got... Bess Heath is the backup keeper in that squad as well. Yep. Um, but sort of working out, looking at that squad, Adam, and, and figuring out how it's likely to play out, it, it all looks pretty predictable at this point. Beaumont and Emma Lamb probably open. Heather Knight, Siverbrunt, Dunkley through the middle, Jones the keeper, and then the possible variations, I reckon, is is whether they try to get Alice Capsi into that team for extra spin or whether they have Danny Wyatt. They, they liked having that kind of attacking option down the order with Wyatt in the Trent Bridge test, and she can bowl spin as well. Capsi's probably got more cred as a bowler, although she's, she can be a bit of a lollipop bowler as well, but she might get purchased because she lobs the ball up. She might get some turn out of a, a wicket in Mumbai. Um, so so it could be one or other of those at seven, I reckon. Eccleston will be at eight, and then they'll pick their other bowlers from Charlie Dean as a spin option or the quicks being Lauren Filer, Kate Cross, Lauren Bell. That's the, the test squad that they put together to start with. Yeah, I mean, I think they'll need one out-and-out out seamer because they'll have Nat Siverbrunt to take the new ball and they can they can fill the side with all-rounders. That's the, the luxury that England enjoy at the moment. My view is that every England team should have Charlie Dean in it. She's a gun. She's an old, mm-hmm. you know, she is a, a beautiful off-spinner uh, and she can bat. And she's a great fielder. So I would pick Dean to partner with Eccleston. Uh, that'd be the first decision I'd make out of all of that. I'd get, I'd go with Capsi. Um, I think they've signaled, haven't they, that Capsi's going to debut, right? So Capsi will get a test cap over in India. And then the one seamer would, in that scenario, be Kate Cross, who missed out on the T20 squad, which was interesting to me. I'm a little bit surprised to see that given she's mm. the, the senior quick and the senior pro in that side at the moment. Wouldn't they want Filer for, for airspeed? Maybe. Though, if you're, yeah. if you're in. You know, Indian surface where you're not likely to get a lot of assistance from it. Um, someone who can bowl quicker than most players are used to facing could be the difference. It could be. It's a fair point. Maybe some reverse out there as well. I do think more with Cross with her experience and another, you know, and if it gets tough and it might get tough, right, it might get long days in the dirt, you want someone like Kate Cross in the dressing room on the field as well, helping marshal the troops with, with Heather Knight. Bit of a segue, but I think an important one. I remember in the first season of the Big Bash, Women's Big Bash, you know, all the way back in 2015, 16, you and I were talking about the need for exclusivity windows, that the Big Bash not be compromised by international cricket and vice versa, so that you don't end up in a situation where one is eating away at the other in the way that it does so regularly in men's cricket. And what do you know? And what do you know? The England players who make the Big Bash final, in all probability, won't be able to play it. 
because the the way the schedule works, they're not going to be sent to Oman to do that training camp piece beforehand. But the first T20, it falls, I think, a day after the Big Bash final. It might even be the same day. Anyway, the point is there is a clear clash there when you factor in travelling and acclimatisation and all the rest of it. So, you know, um, Heather Knight leading the Thunder this season. The Scorchers have got Jones and Siver, Lauren Bell at the Thunder, Danny Gibson at the Strikers, Bess Heath at the Heat. Then the Stars, who aren't going to make the finals, but let's pretend they did. Maya Boucher, Alice Capsi, Sophia Dunkley. You know, like, there is a better way of doing this. You know, we haven't hit the point of mass saturation with women's with, with women's cricket yet with scheduling as we have with men. All we need to do as a cricketing universe is decide that we're not going to let international cricket games be played at the pointy end of tournaments. We experience this a lot with the South Africans, right? It was often the case that Deneva Nikirk and Marazan Cap would reach the final with the Sixers and be unable to play in it. And what do you know? South Africa is scheduled to play a bilateral series against Bangladesh that begins the day after the Big Bash final as well, which will inevitably rule out a bunch of their senior players. So it's not about the Big Bash or any particular domestic comp. It's more about scheduling smarter. Even a few days fat would be sufficient. And look, maybe if you know a couple of the England players make the Big Bash final, they'll be permitted late entry and they'll skip the first T20 or two. I can see a world where that happens and and um, and there's some compromise found, but it shouldn't come to that. Not Not now. We're this far into it. We should be able to have our ducks in a row. And why should you have to miss a game for England? You know, if you're a if you're a, a, mm. a player who has done the work to try to get international representation, you want to play every game that you can. You, you don't want to give up your spot to someone else who might stake a claim for yep. it. And, and you want to, I guess, at the end of your career, you want to have played 118 games, not 116. If exactly. you have the opportunity, right? Like it, every game's important. And in terms of those, we'll have a chance to add to their um, England cap tally. Tash Farrant, thrilled to see her back having had any number of back problems in the last two seasons. Uh, she went down, gosh, it must be about 16 or 17 months ago now, Tash Farrant, in between times, hasn't really had it click for her and she's going to be able to be in that in that extended A squad that'll be initially in Oman, then play some A fixtures against India A and, and Mahika Gower and Lauren Filer are also in that broader, wider squad. So, you know, I think this is smart from England. They're taking as many people out to get this experience as they can. They're taking advantage of the resources at their disposal uh, and and making the most of their professional setup. So that'll, you know, mean a lot for those who are playing, but even those who aren't, they'll be in better nick the next time they go to the subcontinent. For South Africa, Teen Wolf becomes Captain yep. Wolf. Laura Volvart's going to do it full time. She took over the captaincy on an interim basis you know, a few months ago, but that's going to become formal ahead of the Bangladesh series, which means, well, it'll mean she'll be leaving the Big Bash early, certainly, because yeah. she'll have to be running that team. We weren't sure what was going on, basically. Once once Sun Elise backed out of captaincy after having only fairly recently taken it over and, and the politics behind the scenes around that and Wolvart kind of saying, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll step in for now, but it, it wasn't clear as to whether that was going to be long-term, whether she wanted it to be long-term. Um, she seems to have decided that that is the case. Cricket South Africa are in accord now. I mean, she's got a lot of work to do to try to um, get that team together after the the exodus that we've talked about a fair bit on the show of so many senior players retiring just to play the um, the domestic T20 circuit. Big job. I mean, they make that World Cup final 10 months ago and, and they're on that upward curve, but the, the dynamics have changed dramatically in South African cricket since then for that women's side and, you know, you couldn't rule out more retirements, right, now that there's a more lucrative T20 circuit there to be played in and national contracts in South Africa have never kept up with that. So, 
We've interviewed Laura Wolvart on The Final Word before. She's a really impressive, thoughtful, young leader, um, and I hope that she is able to keep the show on the road and, and not have to deal with too much external bullshit along the way. And the England men's white ball squads, mm. they've got three one-days and five T20s in the Caribbean. And and this is interesting because there was a lot of speculation through the tournament about what happens, you know, is it white ball reset time? How do you have a reset when you've just contracted all of the players who are too old and need to be moved on according to some people? What does it look like? Where does it go next? Well, this gives a pretty strong indication on quite a few fronts because they've had to pick teams. They've had to pick teams in, in T20 cricket knowing that there's a T20 World Cup coming up in June. So there's retention of some of the more senior players for that. There's a lot more refreshment, if you will, in the 50-over squad. Joss Butler still the captain, Matthew Mott still the coach, which was interesting in the one day as Johnny Bairstow and David Milan are not there. The the rationale was that Bairstow has a lot of test cricket coming up in India. Milan, a bit more of an open question. So Rob Key did a long interview with Jonathan Agnew and was very open about all the things that had gone wrong and why they'd gone wrong and uh, you know, what they were going to do next and his rationale for a lot of the decisions that have been questioned. The Milan piece of this, though, is curious. Yeah, I listened to that interview with Key and Aggers and it was it was good. I mean, Key on the front foot on a lot of topics. And the great thing about Rob Key is that he just tells you what he reckons. He's not going to, you know, he's not going like to run a media line because I don't think he's capable of running a spin session. He just doesn't have it in him. That That's a partly what's made him such an effective administrator so far, notwithstanding the, the results for England's men at the World Cup recently. And he took responsibility for the fact that they've had to focus or rather that he's told them to focus on red ball cricket. He said he's had many conversations with Matthew Mott, who wants to have greater access to the white ball stars. And it's been key saying you can't. And thus he won't blame Mott for the results in, in India. He'll give him the chance to the words he's used. He'll give them a chance to to find a way through in white ball cricket, acknowledging that they won the, the T20 World Cup under Mott's leadership last year and, and Butler's as well. So they both keep their their jobs, if you like. The Milan thing, I again, using Key as the reference point, he was very critical of the way England batted in the power play. So even though Milan was the most productive of the England batters through the tournament, made a century against Bangladesh in a win, a couple of other half centuries. He made the point that he didn't think they batted aggressively enough compared to their opposition. And that can only be read as Milan, who's typically the slower of the two openers um, in any setup in, in the modern game. And he's lost yeah. his spot, right? So Milan isn't being rested, where Besto's being rested with a view to, with an eye to India, had the bad broken leg last year and so on. With Milan, this is a, you know, we're, we're giving other people opportunities. So where does he go from there? I'm, I'm not mm. quite sure. Ollie Pope's coming in though, you know. So Ollie Pope, who, who has been coming back from injury, we've seen all those social media videos in the nets down there at the Oval. He's back in and they might see him as a long-term prospect in, in that position. Uh, Mo and Ali and Adil Rashid are not in the one-day squad. So they're clearly done in the format. Ryan Ahmed and Tom Hartley are there instead. So they've got a long lead time there till the next one-day World Cup to invest games in those two younger spinners. But they are there in the T20s, Moeen and Rashid. So the suggestion there is that the old firm who've got them this far will try and get them to the T20 World Cup. And they're also including John Turner, Josh Tung in that T20 squad. Reese Topley, they expect to be fit again by then. So all the T's are there. Uh, and they were world champions in the T20 format last year, although I, I don't suppose they'll go into that tournament as favourites or anything close to it because people will understandably mm. look at what they've done in this comp and, and get the impression that they're pushing too hard with a group of players who, who might have passed their peak. Well, it was interesting because Milan did pick up his rate 
as the tournament went on, he scored more quickly against Australia, made that half century there, scored quickly in the Dutch game as well. And I'm trying to think what the last the last England game was against Pakistan. Pakistan. Didn't make that many, but, but it wasn't that slow either. So it's like he got the memo partway through the tournament perhaps, but maybe that was deemed to be too late. Interesting, where, where's the value in the David Milan contract? He's not in the test yeah. team. They think he's too slow for T20s and now he's been pushed out of the 50 overs side. So, you know, what, four weeks, three or four weeks after he signed a, a contract for another year. Yeah, that, that's it. And the same question can be asked of a number of players. Like Joe root has got a three-year contract because he's the unicorn, right? And they want to protect Root to the extent they can. But right. yeah, is Root going to be part of their white ball thinking? I don't know. It's an open question, right? They're going to give room for other players to come through the middle, like Harry Brook, who's in both squads, for example. So Rob Key did say, though, that he's not pensioning any players off. His view is that if you're good enough to be in this World Cup squad, you are still a, a capable enough cricketer to play white ball cricket for England again. He's not ending careers with the exception of David Willey, who was retired on the basis that he didn't get a contract and had enough and he wants to go to to T20 land from here and go on the circuit. And and I suppose fair enough in in those circumstances. So yeah, it was a worthwhile interview listening to that. He also said that they want a battery of fast bowlers across the formats. His uh, assessment is that the best nations around the world are basically using their test bowlers in the short form stuff. So you need a lot of them because they get injured, right? So you need to have a whole group of quicks who can play not only short form cricket, but to have those guys coming from test cricket, like Josh Tung, like Matty Potts, who's been part of that England setup in, in the last couple of years. And that's why they're in the squad. One guy who isn't, who they would love to be is Jofra Archer. He signed a two-year contract, but with that flare-up of the elbow problem when he was in India as part of the training squad, he's uh, not going to be part of the the West Indies tour. They've said very clearly they're going to give him lots of time to get back this time. They're not going to rush the situation. And look, I I still think, Jeff, and I've said this before, but I feel like the, the greatest Mandela effect, if you like, in cricket is the way that Archer's injuries get remembered. I think Everyone just goes, oh, well, Joe Root bowled him for 40 overs that day in, in, in Hamilton back in 2019. Archer played a full summer of test cricket behind closed doors in 2020. He was the player of the IPL in October 2020 after that test summer. I know there were injuries in South Africa between times and I know he cut himself at one point, didn't he, at home in an accident in the shower, I think it was. But like, you know, the Archer story- Fish tank. Fish tank, that's fish right. Tank but the but the uh, the Archer story is more complicated than Joe Root bowled him into the ground in New Zealand over four years ago. And, you know, he's 28 now. Whether he gets back, we all cross our fingers that he will. But this is complex terrain and they need to, I think, now give him all the time in the world with no World Cup uh, for him around the corner. I mean, I suppose they could look at the T20 World Cup, but that's nine months away. So that, that might give them, say, a, a nice six-month buffer where they're not asking him to play bilateral cricket. They're not going to let him play franchise cricket. That much is clear with a national contract. And whether they can um, get him out the other end as a, as a fit bowler once again, as we saw four years ago. It's turning into a Pat Cummins kind of situation. You just keep him on contract for year after year in in the hope that mm. he'll be able to come good, you know, because you know how good he can be when he's at his absolute best. But that's the big unknown, whether he can ever get back to that best. And just one last thing on, on Key. He, he was pretty to the point on domestic leagues. He said, we've contracted these players and we've told them, if you sign a contract... We're not letting you go to the leagues unless we say so. So I guess the power dynamic is going to change here a bit from players picking and choosing what they did. And he used the example of when the England Lions will be playing tours through the winter. If a player wants to go to the ILT20, but they want them going on a Lions trip for you know sod all money, they'll be going on the Lions trip. They will not release them to a domestic T20 comp unless it's in England's interest. So 
I know these national contracts are becoming less valuable, but I suppose if they've been up front with the players, they've got every right to, to hold them to, to that standard uh, as the different competing interests enter their decision-making over time. Well, yeah, then they're not becoming less valuable in, in gross terms. They're becoming yeah. proportionally less compared to some of the other contracts you can get, but there's still a lot of money. So I suppose there's the surety of that and the access to medical facilities and insurance and all the rest of it where, you know, I, I don't know if your ILT20 team is going to be looking after Joffre Archer's back stress fracture rehab for 11 months mm, of the year. Mm. Um, if he signs a contract with them for three weeks in January or February. So mm, interesting where it's all landing. Let's take one more break and then we will look at the WBBL and the Sheffield Shield. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to the Final Word podcast. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, WBBL and Sheffield Shield before we wrap up the show today. Jeff, I must admit I'm not too across the, the, the WBBL as it stands right now. Tell me everything I need to know. What I will tell you, Adam, is that they've completed 38 matches as of just before we hit record, so we're not going to go through them all. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're not going to catch up on every detail. And we did, we, we, we caught up a little bit. We were basically up until Grace Harris broke her bat we had a look at the early WBBL yep. stuff. So I'm going to give you some some broad form lines here. One slight bit of interest is that we expected the Melbourne Stars to be shit ass again. Uh, they've at least won three games. The Renegades have managed one, one win um, out of ten. So they're, they're nine and one at the moment at the bottom of the table. They just lost the derby against the Stars by four runs. This is a Renegades team, bear in mind, with Tammy Beaumont opening the batting. Mm. Harmon Preet at three and Hayley Matthews at four and then Georgia Wareham, Courtney Webb, Sarah Coit coming in. Like, they should not be nine and one. This is a decent cricket team. Also of interest is that my computer, whenever I type in Sarah Coit, it autocorrects it to Sarah Coyote, um, which I quite like. So <laughs> Wiley, you know, could be a nickname if somebody's never heard of Better it. Better than Russell Coit, I suppose. It could be the other correction to go the other way. Yep. And uh, also that Jess Duffin, the artist formerly known as Jess Cameron, who we mentioned earlier talking about Meg Lanning, is still there, which I like, right? Like I, it makes me happy when I see Jess Duffin on a scorecard because I like that she's she's still going around and still whacking the ball. The real Cameron heads out there are into this, but it's also maybe indicative of how they haven't refreshed that squad, you know, if, if they're... I don't know. It, it seems a little bit double-edged to me if, if you're still relying on players who were from a different era, really, and who's playing footy and doing other things. Like that, you know, there there there's a. I don't know if I'm explaining this very well, but it just makes me wonder yeah. about the talent availability aside from getting good internationals, which they have done this year and it hasn't worked anyway. So that Stars game, maybe the liberation of Meg Lanning. Um, she clobbered 67 or 49 to set them up for that win. Um, Renegades needed 20 off the last two overs with Duffin and Courtney Webb, who I rate very highly at the crease but couldn't get there. The Hurricanes have only won three as well. They just lost today off the last ball to the Sixers, who were chasing. They should have won that game to um, the Hurricanes so because they, they managed to throttle most of the dangerous players, Perry, Gardner, etc. Nobody scored particularly highly. And then Matilda Carmichael came in down the order and smashed 20-odd um, quickly, battered Shabnam Ishmael and Molly Strano um, for a few boundaries and got them home 
they needed one run off the last ball and, and got it. So Chloe Tryon and Susie Bates, part of the kind of new look Sydney Sixers approach through that middle order there. You know, Bates coming across from Adelaide where she'd spent a fair bit of time. Was It, it was last season, wasn't it, that she made that move? But um, they're, they're doing things a bit differently because they've got Healy missing as well. So they've got Maitland Brown opening the batting. Um, and they lost a lot of games early, the Sixers, but they've just won four in a row. So they're sitting fifth and looking over the shoulder of the top four. And that includes a win that they had against the Stars, Adam, where the Sixers players had to come out and get the covers off uh, because they had it, it, it had been raining and then there was like lightning delays and the Stars were just ahead on Duckworth Lewis. They were marginally ahead. And so the Sixers really needed to bowl another couple of overs and try to change the equation. So they managed to get out there. They, they helped the ground crew. They got the covers off. They got, they got another over and a half bowled. And in that time, Chloe Tryon took a couple of wickets, conceded almost no runs and shifted DLS so that they ended up as the winners on Duckworth Lewis. So that was a, a close run thing, but they managed to get away with, with that one. You've got Brisbane and Adelaide, six wins out of nine. They're sitting third and fourth. Um, Brisbane just won the head-to-head between those two up in Mackay. Mackay? Mackay. Oh, it's always Mackay, isn't it, on the, on the geographical one. Clint Mackay, Swan Mackay, um, Andrew, Slasher Mackay. Andrew Mackay. Anyway. Andrew McKay, yes, Carlton, mm. Carlton midfield, Carlton halfback, yeah, halfback, halfback flank, mm. bald, yep. just the baldest man alive. It's the only thing I remember about Andrew McKay. Yeah, Mill Hammer, he was bald. Like some people are bald, and some are just some are just I don't know shiny to to some degree that I find very difficult to understand. He was one of them, bald magnet, if you will. Anyway, Mignon Dupree made sixty from forty nine. They won that chase with two balls to go. Brisbane over their close rivals. And then uh, the Thunder and the Scorchers are top, so Green, Sydney and Perth. Thunder probably got robbed by a no result against the Hurricanes, a game they would have fancied winning when that was washed out. But Hannah Darlington's got her groove back, took five for ten against the Stars. I think this is important because, you know, Darlington just kind of lost it completely. It was last season, the last couple of seasons haven't been that crash hot. Sort of had that surge, got was around the, that mm. Australian team for a, a little bit with her ability to hit Yorkers and then just kind of lost confidence in her bowling. The accuracy went, started getting whacked because she's not the quickest going around. But, you know, she, she's got that swing back. Took five for ten, including four of the top five. Went through Lanning, Capsi, Sutherland, Bouchier, Kim Garth, nice. who was cleaned up with an absolute beauty as well, first baller. And that's a pretty solid five for mm. – you, you don't see a lot of five-wicket holes in, in T20 cricket. So their most recent match against Perth, though, they got whomped. The Scorchers have just been doing a lot of whomping. It's whomping season for the Perth Scorchers. They're seven and three at the moment, and they should be whomping everybody because they've got Sophie Devine and Beth Mooney opening the batting, and it's working again this season. They've both made centuries this season. Uh, they're top of the runs with one run between Every the 418 year. and 419. Every single um, year, Beth Mooney's like in the top three or if not top of the pops, and, you know, that change, that shift that she made yeah. a couple of seasons ago, it's reinvigorated her and, and getting Devine over as well from Adelaide. I mean, I know that's two years ago now, but those two together, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised they're, they're smashing it. She has never made fewer than 400 runs in a big bash season, <laughs> Beth Mooney. Remember she made 400. Maybe she made 400 on the dot. Oh, she did. In that first yeah, yeah. It was, it was, I remember that. It was yeah. 400 even and she finished third behind Lanning and uh, Lanning and one other, possibly Perry. Grace Harris. I've got a feeling in the back of my mind might have been. But anyway, Perry? Perry could have been Perry. Could have been Perry because they won seven on the trot to make the finals. The Sixers, didn't they, in that first yeah. season? Yeah. Yeah, and Lanning made something like 
I'm, I'm going to say 573 if I had to pop quiz <laughs> on it in that first season. She she made bulk runs, and then yeah, then there were there were the 700 seasons where Perry and Divine made 700 plus. But yeah, Mooney's made 500s and 600s. She's never made less than 400 in a season, and she's she's gone past that again with four group games yet to play, and then the finals um, four no more than that. Yeah, they play so 14 each. Four, yeah, 14 they're regular they're season games. Twice. Yeah. Yeah. 14 right. games all up, plus finals. Yeah. They're, they're not – right, yes, 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 yes. I th- in my head it was 14 and then I thought, hang on, they're, they're not They're not all playing each other twice because you got – They are. Uh, somehow in my head I went <laughs> I went 10 teams. Yeah, but I just – I was like because the IPL's gone to oh, 10. Oh, right, right, right. Somehow okay. I was like 10 teams, they've got to play nine other teams, so that should be 18. And then I forgot that there were eight teams. So that's that's very <laughs> – considering I've been covering this competition for a decade um, – <laughs> That, that was some, that was that was a mathematical failure. Anyway, Chamari Adepatu's been a great story as well. We were a bit dark on it when she got overlooked in the draft um, after the incredible year that she's had, but she got picked up as a supplementary pick later on. The supplementary numbers are Chamari Adepatu, <laughs> and she's made 331 runs so far this season, and it has been very good for the Thunder. Secret World of Katie Mack has made 330. Perry's gone past 300 so far as well. The wicket tally is not very illustrative of how teams are going. The two top wicket takers are from the Melbourne Stars. Uh, Sutherland and Sophie Day have 19 each, uh, as does the cheat, Lauren Cheadle. But, um, yeah, two of the three equal top from the Stars who are um, going very badly at the bottom of the the table. Well, second bottom. Gardner doing well. Wellington, shoot, they're all taking wickets. Alana King just got her 100th WBBL wicket. So um, felicitations to her. Jess Jonathan's leading all time now with 148, Strano 145, Wellington 140. So there's a nice little race mm. at the the all-time WBBL wicket takers. And that big milestone that everybody waits for, 150 could be around the corner for Jess Jonathan. Get ready for a round of applause. That is the WBBL with most teams having played either nine or ten matches and uh, they are on their way to playing 14, 14 group games, <laughs> playing seven other teams two times, which is 14. Well computed. Yeah, the other one from the stars is Millie Lingworth, who everyone's getting very excited about. I think she's been clocked on telly in the low 120s and she's only 18, so you'd imagine there'll be another yard or two in her there and can she be part of that group of quicks who are inevitably going to be touching 130 or or 80 mile an hour in old money um, soon enough in the women's game. That is exciting. Thank you. My turn. I'll do the Sheffield Shield. How's that sound? Um, The Sheffield Shield had a round of games that was complete on the weekend and there was a thriller at the Gabba, an all-timer. Let me run you through it because I know you haven't seen it, so I can you can do okay. this fresh. I haven't. South Australia made 359 for six, declared in 130 overs to start the match. Bearing in mind South Australia having a pretty good season. Henry Hunt, 162. Nathan McSweeney having a great run of Henry things. Henry Hunt. 112 not out for N McSweeney who made 100 in an earlier game this year, I'm pretty sure. Nisa Wicketless, very rare. So you're, you're, you're hearing it more and more. You're hearing it more and more, Adam. Henry Hunt, Barrett keeps talking about Henry Hunt. Yeah opening the batting prospect and you're hearing about the Nathan Mooks. It, you know, well, it's, it, every day is Nathan Mook day for Adelaide. You're going to hear more about the Nathan Mooks in this summary, believe you me. So they, they keep Nisa wicketless, which is no main feat, uh, and Steckity takes one for 91. So the Queensland pair who've been taking so many wickets are first and second in the Sheffield Shield last year. So they earned their advantage South Australia, especially after bowling out Queensland for 238, so a lead of about 120 or thereabouts. Pearson top scores with 61. Nisa gets a third baller. Got to play. Um, so the momentum is, um, has, uh, has uh, um, for uh, Nisa fallen away this week at least at the Harry Conway. Nathan McAndrew, the other Nathan Mc, 
uh, the Nathans of South Australia. Took six for 41 from 23 overs, relentless. Then South Australia kind of throw it away a little bit. They're all out 151 second time around. Fraser McGurk top scores with 33. Sandu takes four, sweeps and takes three. That leaves Queensland 2-7-3 to chase. Usman Khawaja back in the Queensland side this week. They lose two early wickets. One of them's Renshaw, who for the game made 26 and 3. We're watching very closely that race to take over David Warner's spot. So we've got, you know, Hunt, who you've already mentioned too, Renshaw, Cameron Bancroft, and Marcus Harris, who I'll talk about in a little bit. But they're 11 for two in pursuit of 273. You know, that, that's South Australia's game. Then there's a huge partnership for the third wicket. Joe Burns and Usman Khawaja, the old firm for Queensland, Burns. Gets to 91 and he's nicked off by McAndrew. Now, this is when it gets really interesting. The fight back from South Australia with about 90-odd runs to play with. McSweeney. So Usman's in the in the middle At order. the other end. Usman's batting three or four or whatever. He's down the other end. He must have been batting four. But he's still there at the non-striker's end watching the other Mick back in it again after a century in the first dig. Picks up Pearson, then Nisa, both league before. Then McAndrew's back in the attack. He gets Wildermuth for 21 just when it looks like Jack Wildermuth's going to be the match winner. They're 245 for seven. Then they're 246 for eight when Jordan Buckingham bowls Sandu for a duck. Then... They're 250 for nine when Steckity gets out to Buckingham and it looks like South Australia have turned it around entirely. They've taken seven for 59 and Queensland still need 23 to win. In walks Swepson, joins Usman Kawaja. They're great mates. Kawaja's on 98 by this stage. As soon as Swepson gets there, he advances to 100. They come back for two. They scamper through. They're 21 away from victory. One day drama. Kawaja is cutting and steering and nerdling boundaries in the way that he does so well, but doing the fours and ones thing, milking the strike perfectly, South Australia look like they're going to botch it. It gets to 269 for nine. They're one boundary away. Kawaja, having hit a four and a one to finish the previous over to get back on strike, is facing Buckingham and he knocks him over. Inside edge back onto the stumps. Kawaja bowled. And they are running around the South Australians like they've won the grand final. It's like Pat Cash at Wimbledon jumping into the crowd business. Jordan Buckingham scenes. Finishes with three for 83. McAndrew, three to go with his six from the first dig, a nine-wicket match. McSweeney's two for after the earlier century. South Australia win by three runs at the Gabba. And having finished third last year, just missed out on the Shield final, they are currently in second spot, one point off the top. And I won't tell you who's on top yet, Jeff, because that's surprising as well. So that's game one. What a great okay. finish. Okay. That is a great finish. I was actually seeing it happen in my mind as you described it to me. Yeah, to, to get within a boundary. When you need a boundary to win, you're like, well, Kawaja will win that. So, you know, that'll be that'll be an all-time memory for Buckingham as well. Yeah. And, and if oh, imagine if you could get the Mercs to play for Australia with the off-spinner from New South Wales and then maybe, maybe Coulton Isle floats in. We could have an all-Nathan. <laughs> Bowling attack. Imagine that. That'd be Lion Nathan's. Nath. Nath. Over in Sydney where Nathan Lyon was playing, isotopes win a game. Isotopes win a game. New South Wales. Wait, what? New South Wales. Hang on, that's way more surprising than the three. New South Wales won. They beat WA. They pumped them. What? They beat, I know, right? It was on a, I, I mean, I saw the photos on social media. It looked like a green top. I also saw on social media, Michael Bevan, 
posting during the week. Now, if you don't follow Bevo, he's, he can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I don't follow him, but our friend Nick Tooby does and occasionally sends me screenshots from Bevo's offerings on there. He's keen mm-hmm. to be heard. He's keen to coach as well. And he said that he'd struck a deal with Cricket New South Wales to be coaching the batters this year only for them to never call back again. So he's done some deal and never actually been down to the SCG to coach them. But they have done well this week. So they bowled out WA for 141. I think we mentioned that on the weekly show last week with Liam Harcher taking four for 56, Tremaine a couple in line, two for 18 from 18. In response, New South Wales, 276 a lead of 135 on the first innings. Ollie Davies, the 23-year-old, top scored with 129. The captain, Moses, made 51. And Lance Morris, of note, I think it's his first game back, I reckon, took three for 87. Midnight in Joel, two for as well for WA, just to keep them vaguely in the game. But second time around, they're rolled for 138. Bancroft makes a half century, but Tremaine takes a Pfeiffer to go with his couple from the first innings. Harcher gets three more as well. And New South Wales knock it off easily to win by 10 wickets. So they're on the board. Is that their first win in about 15 games or something, Jeff? Maybe a bit more? 15. I think they, yeah, I think they, I think it was, I think it got up to 15. Maybe it started the season at 13. Right. And then there were the first, couple, no, it didn't start the season at 13. It was it was up to 13 a couple of rounds right. ago, yeah. I reckon. So I think we're at 15 yeah, but the- without having looked it up. So, ooh, okay. Um, okay. They're, well, now they're back in business. They're Maybe. up and running. They've knocked off the indomitable Western Warriors, who are not called that. No, they are called they that. They are called that. That's not, uh, you know, given WA, they, given WA are pretty much a test team. That's not for nothing. I reckon that's a significant step in the right direction yeah. for the Blues. And in the least eventful of the three games over the weekend, Tasmania drew with the Vicks on a flat line at the Juno by the looks of things. Shock horror. Tasmania. A flat one? Uh, at the Junction Oval. At the Junction Oval. Oval. <laughs> At the Junction Oval. Next thing you're going to tell me, Marcus Harris made 260. Close. Uh, Tasmania made 452 to begin with, though. Charlie Joaquin, 148. Good start to his year. Bo Webster, 97, not out. Victoria kept it in check, I think, admirably with the ball. They never quite got away. They went at three and over, not four and over. You know, so they, they aren't, you know, they batted for 150 overs, nearly Tasmania, for that. So they needed to pretty much bowl out Victoria twice following on and that wasn't going to happen because Victoria made 373 and Marcus Harris, after missing a couple of games for the birth of his first child, I think it was, made 164 to keep his name right towards the front of that competition to replace David Warner. Of he did. Cam Kellaway, 51. Peter Hanscom, 52. Tasmania batted the second time and made 182 for two with the captain, Jordan Silk, top scoring with 82 not out. And it means that Tasmania stay on top of the ladder, defying expectations after losing, you know, Bird and Siddle and so on. They're on 20 points, really close here, by the way. Tasmania, 20, South Australia, 19, West Australia, 18, then New South Wales, 14, Queensland, 12, Victoria, 11. They're all pretty much within a game and a half of each other. So that sets up the next round really nicely. WA hosting SA, Victoria back at the G against Queensland and Tasmania, can stay on top if they beat New South Wales down at Bell Reeve. And that's the last game before the Big Bash break. It's been a, a really good, uh, better than that, it's been an excellent start to the Sheffield Shield season. It's all over the place. There have been storylines galore. Yeah. Um, even even the bits where we've been catching up have been great. And um, look, I, I'm not sure if, if the Big Bash will capture my interest in quite the same way, but we can we can we can only wait and see at this stage okay that is that's that's the end of the shield wrap this is this has got to be i think one of the lowest energy final word weekly shows <laughs> that we've ever done you can tell that it's the monday after 
what is it, 38 days straight of group stage World Cup? Like, we, we are flat as a tack at this point. Yeah, we're, we're a bit low energy, Jeb Bush, aren't we? But that's, that's okay. I think our audience will forgive us. We've still covered a lot of terrain and we still have some things to note as we finish. Uh, a reminder about the Glenn Maxwell T-shirt. Buy it. It's in your show notes. Sign up to the Edinburgh Half Marathon or Marathon. Get yourself a NordVPN while you're there. That's all there. That's all chock-a-block in the notes beneath mm-hmm. the show. The 99 semi-final documentary of the tie, uh, drop that in the feed on Monday afternoon Australia time. If I do say so myself, that's one of the best things I've ever worked on. So if you like hearing about cricket games from 24 years ago, this is the place for you or 23 and a half years ago, and you probably know how that story ends. But, you know, it, it, we, we got a lot out of the guests, which include, you know, Adam Gilchrist and Lance Klusner, Steve Elworthy, Tom Moody, Damien Fleming, who all played in the game, and Simon Mann, and Tim Lane, who commentated on it. So it's uh, it's something that we're proud of and hopefully you will enjoy. Storytime, we had some great tales last week, including the last one that I told when you were on the street in Delhi and I was in a pub uh, recording The Daily Show with Cam, talking about a, an old Somerset player who achieved remarkable things in his weird and wonderful first-class career across England and India. So check back into the feed if you didn't listen to Storytime. We will have a World Cup semi-final preview coming tomorrow. We will have more information about our live shows hopefully coming tomorrow inside that as well. We will have daily shows from both semis and the final. And then we have got a massive interview dropping two days after the World Cup final. That's about it. That's everything that everyone needs to know, I reckon, Jeff. It is indicative of two people who cannot stop and will not stop. (laughs) And also DC, our editor, who has been can't stopping and not stopping, won't stopping through the entirety. And Cam Ponsonby has been not stopping much either. Mm. And uh, I'm by God, a bunch of other people who've been coming in to help us not stop uh, over the last three, three weeks. You could. I'm done. I'm. I'm cooked. This is. This is it. This is. This is the end. Uh, we've got a couple of days before the semi-final. We've got more things to record on subsequent days. But for today, I'm not going to say any more words. This is the last word I will speak until the end of the day. Final word, Jeff Adam. I had to.